Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's award-winning novelist Lori Benton. Her latest book takes place in 18th century America and explores relationships between people who come from different backgrounds, a book that relates ideas about God's love. Then from Citizens for Self-Governance, it's Mark Meckler who analyzes the most recent round of debates involving presidential candidates vying for the Democratic nomination. Plus, Tim Bailey is a longtime pastor in Bloomington, Indiana, and shares observations relative to the church and matters of pastoral care and biblical community. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Lathan Watts of First Liberty who talk with me about the significance of chaplains in the military, including the history of the position and the unique challenges that chaplains face today. Plus, Melissa Rosenberger had a career as an anesthesiologist and sensed God's call to walk away and to pursue her love of writing. She has written a work of historical fiction centered around one of the sisters of Jesus. Find out more ahead. Finally, Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation spoke with me about rising seas and rising population, offering a biblical perspective on how to respond to those who would express concern in those areas. Comments from that conversation are ahead. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Lori Benton is a Christie Award-winning novelist and is known for her historical fiction. Her latest work is entitled The King's Mercy and takes place in the 18th century American South. The main character has been spared from punishment and has a unique journey, meeting a host of people different than himself along the way. Discussing the book that expresses the love of God, here now is Lori Benton. The King's Mercy, it's mainly set in the colony of North Carolina, though it does start out in Scotland for just a little bit. It's in the 1740s, and it explores the theme of freedom from multiple perspectives and cultures. Um, one One of the main characters is Alex McKinnon. He's an imprisoned and exiled Scottish rebel. Um, My heroine is Joanna Carey, and she's a plantation mistress in North Carolina, caught, or she feels caught, in the system of chattel slavery. Another character is Elijah Moon, a blacksmith who's been crippled by a devastating injury. Then there's Gemma. She's a young slave girl on the plantation who's longing for escape. And there's the Reverend David Pauling, who is an itinerant preacher. And he's a man who's willing to become a slave uh, to see the kingdom of God expand. There's Runsfar, a Cherokee youth who who breaks with his people's traditions. So each character's path to freedom is unique, as unique as their cultures. And it's determined by their choices, um, rebellion or obedience, despair or hope, malice or mercy. And when you talk about it, let me ask a, a follow-up here with respect to the, the overall story arc of this particular book. The it, it plays off this theme of mercy, and it actually has to do, as I understand it, with a, an act toward the first gentleman that you mentioned by the name of Alex. He had received something called the King's Mercy. That's correct. That's correct. Um, you know, and it's Without a doubt, the strangest thing uh, as far as historical facts go that I learned with while researching this, and I worked into the book, was the lotting of Scottish prisoners who were taken at the Battle of Culloden, which was the last battle of the 1745 Jacobite attempt to restore the House of Stuart to the English throne. 
um, I've simplified the depiction of this lotting in the King's Mercy because it really was a, a very complicated process. But in general, one in 20 prisoners was chosen at random to stand trial and chosen by things as, like I said, random as slips of paper drawn from a hat. And the rest applied for and received what was called the King's Mercy, the King in this case being King George. And that was exile and transportation to the colonies, and that is what happens to Alex McKinnon. And in the midst of this backdrop, you explore some very serious themes, and as you alluded to earlier, this whole area of freedom, man's concept of freedom and freedom in Christ. And I want you to take some time to to talk about these these different types of freedom, man's concept versus our freedom in Christ, and uh, and elaborate on that, if you would. Oh, that's a great question, because that's one of those that makes me dig deep. Um, you know, I, I believe God has different priorities for us on this earth than we have for ourselves apart from Him. Um, by and large, we're concerned with our present comfort and happiness, and that includes justice, freedom, and equality, but here on earth, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But I do think God takes a longer view, and sometimes what will best shape me into who he means me to be for all eternity, or what will help best uh, help me best know him here now, requires learning to be content in circumstances that the world sees as less than ideal. So by laying down my plan for my life, when, you know, when he, those times when he allows it to go in another direction that maybe I wouldn't have chosen, um, it's a way I've found sets me free from things that weigh me down, um, fear and pride, my idols, my self-will and rebellion. Um, I would say that most of us view the more horrific forms of slavery, getting back to that topic, as, as those that happen in the physical realm, and they really are horrific, but they're also temporal from an eternal perspective. A man or woman continuing in slavery to sin, I think it's the greatest tragedy because it will last forever and make anything that happened in this life seem um, a light affliction compared to an eternity separated from the wholeness and goodness and freedom that God offers. And, you know, for those who enter eternity believing in the finished work of the cross, Whatever afflictions suffered in this life, however bad, those are going also to seem a light affliction compared to an eternity of all things made new and right and just. Lori Benton here on The Intersection. You can find her through the Facebook page, facebook.com, author Lori, L-O-R-I, Benton. This is The Intersection Podcast with Mark Meckler president of Citizens for Self-Governance and the Convention of States Project. He provided some analysis of the debates involving Democratic presidential candidates held in Detroit July 30th and 31st. From that conversation, this is Mark Meckler. Bernie Sanders, as well as Elizabeth Warren, still among the front runners with respect to the polling. So you had the two of them as, as kind of the headliners, the highest ranked candidates in the polls. And then you, you also can throw Pete Buttigieg in that as well, as far as in a uh, in the more uh, the more left wing camp. Then you have some some more moderate voices, such as former Representative Delaney or Governor Hickenlooper from Colorado that are more voices of moderation. So as you saw this all 
set up? What did you observe as far as the contrast between the ideas of, say, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren versus some of the others in the field? You saw the schism in the Democratic Party. I think you, you hit it. I'd throw uh, C. Bullock in there as well. Yeah. And yep. these were folks that actually sounded pretty rational and pretty reasonable. Uh, and to be frank, if you dig into their records and scratch just below the surface, they're pretty much as radical as anybody else on the stage. They just understand the political marketing and that that stuff is not going to sell with anything bigger than 20 percent of the American people. So I think their pitch was correct. Uh, the guys that came across as more moderate, which is Americans are not going to buy giving away or having their health insurance taken away. Americans are not going to buy open borders. They're not going to buy free health care for all illegal immigrants. And if we talk about that kind of stuff, we're going to lose the election. I think they won the night. Uh, as far as talking to most Americans, but they weren't playing to the radical base, and that's what's going to win the nomination. All right, Wednesday night, you had the front runner, the former Vice President Joe Biden, also the seemingly surging up until Wednesday night, Kamala Harris, also on the stage, where you might have had more of an extreme versus moderate flavor on Tuesday night. It was basically Biden versus the field. Yeah, and it's uh, radical democratic socialism on display with all its radicalism. All the candidates taking very close to the same positions, including Joe Biden being driven far to the left of, of where he's lived his political life, uh, you know, still staking out a little bit of Obama ground, which is now conservative in the Democratic Party. I think the the big winner of the night is Joe Biden. He was much better than he was in the first debate. Still not fantastic, uh, strong at the beginning, weak at the end. People got some shots in on him, but but markedly above where he was. And frankly, all he had to do was not get destroyed to maintain his lead, and I think he did that. Well, so let's let's explain. I think that you you've already really alluded to this with respect to Biden attempting to develop some sort of appeal to the Democratic liberal or ultra liberal base, and so he has abandoned some policies that have been part of his political DNA all along. One of those came up in the debate the other night, the the Hyde Amendment providing for taxpayer funding of abortion. He has been a supporter of the Hyde Amendment. I guess today his position is that he supports taxpayer funding of abortion. That is quite a shift, and we see Biden trying to appeal again to the base, but is that really necessary for him to do? No, I don't think it is, and I think it's a big mistake, and especially on the Hyde Amendment, what he did recently was really an embarrassment to Joe Biden, and it shows, frankly and sadly, his lack of spine. He's always been a supporter of the Hyde Amendment, preventing taxpayer-funded abortions. Uh, he's been relatively consistent on that throughout his career. It fits his what he claims is his religious position, and yet ultimately he took that position recently. I think this just goes back maybe 60 days ago. He got lambasted for it by the radical left, and literally the day after he switched his position. So I think it's an embarrassment for him, and I think it's something he's going to be appropriately attacked on in the general election if he's the nominee. Well, and and as we look at, uh, again, the the situation involving Joe Biden, he was the focus of many in the field. There was the, what, what I would say, kind of out in left field attack on Kamala Harris by the little-known Hawaii representative Tulsi Gabbard. So what do you make of that? That, that kind of, to me, it kind of came out of nowhere. Well, it really did. I actually think it was it was a beautiful attack in in sort of debate terms. 
It was politically appropriate. It was factually appropriate. And it showed kind of the strength of Tulsi Gabbard. I I would actually say, in my opinion, the single most dangerous candidate face-to-face against President Trump on the stage is Tulsi Gabbard. And frankly, if her foreign policy positions were not so far out of line, she'd be a lot more powerful candidate. Mark Meckler here on The Intersection. You can learn more about his organizations at conventionofstates.com or selfgovern.com. The Intersection podcast continues now with Tim Bailey. He serves as pastor at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana, and publishes material through Warhorn Media. In our recent conversation, he shared his perspective on the church as he relates in his book called Church Reformed, concentrating on basic concepts including pastoral care, community, and participation in the sacraments. This is Tim Bailey now. It doesn't matter where in life. It doesn't matter what the institution is, whether it's a family, whether it's a nation, or whether it's a flock of sheep with a shepherd. We have people who are given the responsibility of protecting the flock. And we see this everywhere. We see police, law enforcement officers. We see, you know, principals of schools. We see uh, the military and, and, and the various branches of our federal government. You know, we see the state police. We see... Well, the courts. God is the one who is the Father Almighty. He has written fatherhood, which means authority, into every institution because it is in his nature to be a father, and he has blessed every human society with leadership whose calling it is to protect the weak and defenseless. You with me? Yes. And so you go to the church, and it's like all of a sudden everybody's trying to say, I don't have any authority. I just, I just love you. I'm here to teach you and to love you. And then every single church, every single church has within it the same things that we see among the people of God in Scripture. We, all of us, have abuse of wives of their husbands and of husbands of their wives. Trust me. We have incest. We have fornication, we have adultery, we have homosexual conduct, we have lesbianism. All of us have these things in our churches. But everybody is so worried about all the politically correct language and about all the blogs online, like, well, I won't even mention the name, I won't dignify some of their names. And everybody's running scared that if if we protect somebody in the church, we're going to get written up on the internet or we're going to get called haters. Well, In our church, our women, our older Titus II women and our men, we protect the flock. We protect the college students. We protect the the children, the grandchildren. And when we have a spouse who abuses another spouse physically, Bob, what we do is the elders get together, meet with them, and then take them down to the police station and have them confess their crime. Okay? That's just what we do. When we have other forms of sexual uh, sin committed in a home, and we have done this a number of times, so much that we have a reputation in our community now for doing this, we take them down to the police, we have them confess their crimes. When the judge makes a decision about somebody who has confessed the crimes, it has not been uncommon for the judge to say, either on the bench or off the bench, 
that the discipline in the church of this person, and we're in a very liberal community, the discipline of this person is much better at addressing recidivism than anything they could do through the mm. court system and through, uh, through prison, through jail, through fines. And so I am pleading for us to remember that the church is a mediating institution, and that if you look at the practice with the Corinthians, if you look at what Paul says about what went on in Ephesus, it just bears very little resemblance to how we as older women and older men, elders, Titus II women, deacons, pastors, are leading our churches today. And we have to recover the specifics of the New Testament church. And it really is basic. And there are four pages of Scripture citations in the back of the book. I'm not trying to argue for Presbyterianism, although I am a Presbyterian. Um, I'm not trying to say that, you know, other denominations are wrong. I'm trying to be non-sectarian and basic in saying we must recover submission authority in the practice of the basics of, of preaching, of fellowship, of the sacraments, and of prayer. And I know that we live in a culture that hates authority. I have a lot of that in myself, okay? I don't like getting tickets. I don't <laughs> like having to go to the speed limit. There are a lot of things I don't like, right? But God gives us authority as a gift, and we're either going to realize that our children are not going to do well if there's never any authority in the home or church, or we're going to desire the salvation of their souls more than we desire the comfort of ourselves. Tim Bailey here on The Intersection. Find out more through warhornmedia.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. And you can find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. Conversations with guests featured on the Intersection podcast can be found not only through the website, but also through the Faith Radio app. Learn about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the Faith Radio website at faithradio.org. Content is also available through other apps. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection podcast, Lathan Watts is Director of Legal Communications for First Liberty Institute. He discussed the significance of the chaplaincy in the military in light of the celebration of its recent anniversary. He also shared about challenges facing military chaplains. From that conversation, this is Lathan Watts now. Yeah, Mike's piece was, uh, was, was excellent. He heads our military division uh, for First Liberty. Um, and uh, you're right, the, the role of the chaplain has been, has been around uh, since before we were the United States of America. Uh, you know, they, one of the first acts of the Continental Congress before we were even a free and independent country is one of the very first requests that uh, then-General Washington, later President George Washington, requested. Um, and you know, they recognized the essential role that chaplains would play in, in the military, that you want uh, your soldiers uh, to be 
encouraged uh, by their faith and comforted by their faith when uh, when necessary. And um, there are uh, uh, fairly recent um, surveys that show that about three quarters of the of the people who volunteer in the military cite their religious faith as the main reason why they enlisted. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, to have uh, chaplains uh, in the military to to fill that role and uh, to minister to uh, the folks that are serving on the front lines and, uh, and in all sorts of positions around the world um, is a it's an it's an integral part of what makes our military uh, the best in the world. And unfortunately, uh, in recent years, some of those chaplains have come under attack um, and faced uh, you know, career-ending action, and uh, in some and some and in some cases even uh, you know court-martial or uh, or prison uh, military prison time uh, for, for doing nothing else than following their faith and uh, and doing their job in the military. Um, a military chaplain has to be endorsed by a religious body, and their uh, responsibilities, their their duty as a military chaplain, they are duty bound by army regulation to follow the teachings of their religious endorser and army regulations. So what we've seen uh, recently um, is that some of the chaplains doing just that, following the teachings of their endorsing agency and uh, fulfilling their role according to army regulations, have been uh, have, have seen uh, disciplinary action taken against them for for doing just that. And so we've had to intervene and and defend them and thankfully have been successful in doing so. But it demonstrates that there is either a common misconception or maybe something worse, hopefully not, um, going on in the military that really needs to be addressed. And so um, we're actually, um, people can go to our website, uh, firstliberty.org, and um, and read more about our, our cases in the military, but they can also sign a petition uh, that uh, we are going to be forwarding on uh, encouraging um, President Trump to uh, sign a new executive order specifically for the military, protecting the religious liberty uh, of our soldiers and our chaplains. Um, the president's been very strong on religious liberty. He did sign an executive order uh, directing the, the federal government to you know, take measures to protect religious liberty. But it seems like the military might not have uh, necessarily gotten the memo So, um, based on some of these cases that we're seeing. So we think uh, an executive order uh, specifically for the military would make it crystal clear uh, to uh, the commanding officers uh, in all the branches um, that the religious liberty of uh, the people in uniform um, should be protected. And, you know, it's... It's just unconscionable to think that people who are willing to volunteer to put their life on the line to defend these rights for other people are having those rights denied to them. And uh, that's why our military division exists. It is to protect those rights um, for the men and women in uniform who are out there uh, defending those rights for us. Lathan Watts here on the Intersection Podcast. You can find out more about First Liberty Institute by going to first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. The website has a petition calling on the Trump administration to protect religious liberty in the military. 
Next up here on the Intersection Podcast, it's author and former anesthesiologist Melissa Rosenberger. In our recent conversation, she shared about God's call to exit the medical profession and to write. She also discussed the concept of the historical fiction book In the Shadow of the King, book one in the Unveiled series, which has as its central character one of the Sisters of Jesus. Here now is Melissa Rosenberger. As an adult, while I was practicing medicine, I came back to the Lord and rededicated my life to Him. And the closer I got to God and the more I studied His Word and prayed and sought Him, um, I, my faith grew inside of me and became bigger than, than the fear I had of the unknown. And so I really felt this desire to write again. And I began writing some short stories and um, nothing that was too serious, but, but I just had this, this feeling inside of me, like I, I really wanted to write a novel. It was something I'd always wanted to do. And so eventually in 2014, um, I, I, after much prayer, just took that step and, and left medicine and wasn't exactly sure what would be next. Um, but God had already ordained all kinds of steps that got me pointed in the right direction so that I was able to write the novel. And I understand along the way there was a trip to Israel that came along. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's part of when I look back, I see God's hand involved in this because I had scheduled a tour of Israel months before I ended up resigning from my position as a doctor. And so the final months of working as a physician, I had this trip planned and I thought, well, gosh, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing with my life. But I I decided I needed to still go on the trip. And while I was in Israel, uh, the Lord just gave me a tremendous heart for Israel, for the Jewish people. And I was sitting on a bus one day with the tour group, just waiting for some stragglers to get on the bus and, and praying. And and God put the idea for this novel in my heart. It just came up in my spirit, write a book about Jesus's sister. And I literally thought, there's no way I could write a book like this. I don't know the first thing about life in first century Israel. And as soon as I had that thought, the tour guide gets on the bus, holds up some references and said, for anyone who's interested in learning about life in first century Israel, these are some <laughs> wonderful books. So I just had to laugh. I know God has a sense of humor. And it was it was just his way of showing me, if you know, if I, if I put this on your heart to do, I'm going to supply everything that you need to get it done. And once I had the idea, I began to see more and more references throughout the Gospels to um, Jesus's brothers. And, and began to see that really um, his family painted this picture of redemption. It was almost like a microcosm of what God was doing in the world. So you have created a character, and of course, based on this reference in the Bible, uh, this work now in the shadow of the king of his, what you, I guess you would call it historical fiction, your main character is one of these sisters by the name of Hannah. So take us just a bit through her timeline as it progresses throughout the novel. Well, Hannah uh, is the firstborn child to Mary and Joseph after Jesus. Um, And the book begins with her as a child, and she clearly knows something is different about her brother Yeshua or Jesus. Um, She's always feeling a little bit insecure, like she's overshadowed by him. He does no wrong. He never gets in trouble. Everyone seems to gravitate towards him. So she's a bit envious 
and, you know, wishes that she got some of that attention. Um, but she's shocked when she finds out from her parents about the prophecies saying that, that Yeshua is really the Messiah. And she's skeptical. She's willing to believe it until um, some terrible things happen with the family. And in her mind, she has certain expectations of who the Messiah should be. And when Jesus doesn't fulfill those expectations, she's very hurt. She no longer trusts them. And she decides that she's going to have to take care of herself and take matters into her own hands. So unfortunately, through a series of events, you know, she ends up as a young woman in a marriage uh, to a man who doesn't love her. Uh, to a, she's in a family of Sadducees who, who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't subscribe to some of her beliefs. Um, and then Jesus, again, plays a role in her life because now he becomes involved in the ministry. And instead of looking at it as a good thing, she interprets all of his actions as drawing negative attention to the family. She sees him as someone who's jeopardizing her status. And so when Jesus asks her to trust him as an adult, she really has a hard time with that and struggles because she fears man more than she believes that God is who he says he is. Melissa Rosenberger here on The Intersection. Her website is Melissa Rosenberger. That's R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R books. Com. Finally, here on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, Calvin Beisner, offering a biblical worldview perspective on the environment. In our overall conversation, he discussed a recent article posted on the ministry website about rising sea levels, and he shared information on his latest book entitled Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population, Resources, and the Future. Here now is Cal Beisner. Roughly since about 1950 or 1960. Okay. That's the period during which supposedly human emissions of CO2 have been causing rapid global warming. Uh, the reality is that there has not been uh, historically unusually rapid global warming over that period. And human emissions of CO2 have probably contributed to the little bit of warming that there's been, but not very much. I think what we really see is that this is one more instance among many of governments coming up with alleged catastrophes around the corner as an excuse for getting people to give governments more control over our lives. You know, are we going to be free to make our own decisions about what kind of energy sources we're going to use? Or are we going to allow the government to determine what energy sources we use? Uh, markets will use the energy sources that are the most abundant, the most affordable, and the most reliable. Uh, governments, because they are lobbied by uh, lobbyists for industries that can't compete well in the marketplace, are likely to favor energy sources that are not so abundant, affordable, or reliable. Uh, so what that means is governments are likely to favor things like wind and solar, uh, which uh, are much more expensive and much less reliable as energy sources, rather than fossil fuels. And when you look at the actual amount of government subsidy per megawatt of energy produced, uh, it's hundreds of times as much to wind and solar as it is to oil, coal, or natural gas. So in attempting to try to address these problems, these 
government-based solutions, again, with that more liberal viewpoint of climate change, as you mentioned earlier, does have the potential to negatively impact the poor. And when we talk about the whole biblical framework of this, we obviously recognize what the scriptures have to say about our stewardship of the earth, as well as our compassion for the poor. So comment on that yes. as we as we talk about the biblical response to what we're seeing happening with respect yeah. to the response to climate change. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, you know, in Galatians 2.10, Paul reported that when he visited the apostles in Jerusalem uh, early in his ministry, one of the things that they told him was, we want to make sure that you remember the poor. And he said, that's the very thing that I was already set out to do. (laughs) And of course, we have the evidence of Paul having raised collections from churches in Greece uh, to help the Christians in Jerusalem during a period of famine there. So Paul definitely had the poor in mind. Jesus said that his coming brought good news to the poor. Uh, We have plenty of of concern for the poor all through the scriptures. And when we recognize that government-mandated switch from abundant, affordable, reliable energy sources to diffuse, expensive, unreliable sources will trap billions of people in poverty and possibly push hundreds of millions or possibly even billions of people who have risen out of poverty back into it. Well, if we want to remember the poor, we don't want to embrace those policies unless there is just an absolutely airtight case uh, for the necessity of doing so. And the fact is, there is no such case. Cal Beisner here on The Intersection. The website address is cornwallalliance.org. Well, it is about time to wrap up this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the podcast. And you can find the Intersection podcast in the Media Center, plus it's available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage. One is the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is the three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There is also a link to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Content for the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about it when you visit faithradio.org. And through the Meeting House homepage, you can find out about other apps through which content from the Meeting House is available. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.